This is the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast, and I am Mike Riccio, longtime personal trainer, professional strength coach, gym owner, and most importantly, a devoted modern father and husband. I've been fortunate to learn under some of the most intelligent minds in health and fitness over the past 15 years, as well as work with amazing clients and athletes. What I've most fallen in love with over the years is the power we have over our lives, the power to decrease risk of disease and injury, the power to reach our true potential, the deep abilities the body is capable of when all aspects of health are working simultaneously. On this podcast, you will learn the importance of preventative health and how to optimize your habits to optimize your life. Today, you're hearing from Dr. R.T. Thungadu, an endocrinologist out of San Antonio, Texas, who specializes in diabetes. What really draw me to Dr. Thungadu was, in her social media pages, she focuses so much on lifestyle changes. So nutrition and sleep and how basic habits can have such a positive effect on her patients, both from a preventative and from a treatment standpoint. Today, we're gonna get into all that and what she does with her patients and at her practice. And uh, we're also gonna talk about some just common buzzwords and topics. So we're gonna get into fasting and meal timing and types of meals and just talk through some of those tactics and what the research says. And we'll talk a little bit about COVID as well and how her patients have been affected by the current situation. So a lot to offer in this episode, a lot of takeaways for anybody. As always, let me know if you have any questions and please rate and review the episode when you are done. Listen in, enjoy. All right, and we are on Dr. Thungadu, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you for having me. So just to kick off, uh, if you could tell everyone a little bit about you know, your background, what you do, and that'll kick us off into our topic. Yeah, so I am an endocrinologist and I have a practice that focuses on lifestyle optimization for prevention and remission of chronic diseases that are really common, like Diabetes is the most common disease I treat, but with that comes things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, lifestyle-related diseases. So as an endocrinologist, I'm a board-certified physician, so that means I went to medical school after college and then did residency for three years in internal medicine and then a two-year endocrinology fellowship. And then after that, I got certified in nutrition and I got a third board certification in lifestyle medicine. Okay. All right. And, and you mentioned that diabetes happens to be what you treat most often. Is there a reason for that? Is it does it tend to be the most treatable of the preventable diseases or is it just the most prevalent case? So I'm a diabetes specialist. So I would say about 80% of patients who are referred to me are referred for diabetes. So that's why it's the most common thing that I treat because I'm kind of the end of the road for patients with, with diabetes or some patients I'm the beginning of the road, which is awesome because then we can prevent them from getting to the late stages of the disease. But basically when a primary care physician feels like they have kind of exhausted their toolbox, they'll, they'll refer to me as a specialist. Okay. Interesting. So I'd like to maybe start off with a little basic physiology. You know, for those out there who, who need kind of a refresher on how the body works, could we talk a little bit about, you know, maybe we'll start with nutrition. So when we eat, what is the body's reaction to eating? What happens with insulin and food and maybe how that affects that? We'll go, we'll start with diabetes specifically. 
Yeah. So that's a very, very complex question. I know. <laughs> um, so I think maybe talking about how diabetes and insulin work together would be a good place to start. So, so insulin is a hormone that's produced by the pancreas, which is a very important organ in the center of your abdomen. And insulin is produced by specific cells in, in the pancreas. And so a normal human being without diabetes in response to ingestion of carbohydrates will secrete a little bit of insulin. And also insulin is secreted all day long because the liver secretes or makes sugar as well. So the body uses sugar for energy for the most part. And so when we're sleeping and not eating, the liver is producing sugar so that our brain works and our heart works and our lungs work even when we're not feeding our body's food. So that secretion of insulin that's kind of all day long that counters what the liver is doing is called basal insulin. And then at mealtimes, we secrete a little bolus in response to carbs. Now, when you start to develop something like diabetes, type two diabetes specifically, people start to become resistant to that insulin. So a term that I think a lot of people have heard is insulin resistance. So what that means is we, our body is working really hard. Our little pancreas is working really hard to make insulin. However, our bodies are in a position to not utilize that insulin properly to use the sugar, to bring the, the sugar into the muscles, to, to tell the liver appropriately to stop making so much sugar after we've eaten food because the signaling in our body is, is off. And most often that's due to excess dietary fat or excess body fat. So um, that's kind of one part of your nutritional question um, that yeah. it relates most to, to patients with diabetes. Okay. No, that's a great start. So, so when insulin starts becoming more prevalent in the system, cause we can't use it, obviously medication is very commonly used. How, and again, I know I realize these are big complex questions, but to simplify, how do medications basically help to counteract this response? Yeah, so, so some of the medications that we have for diabetes target insulin resistance, some target lowering the blood sugars, and some target insulin production. So a very common medication that's used for diabetes is called metformin. That medication Actually, the, the exact mechanism of action is not fully understood, but it improves insulin resistance. So it makes the insulin that your body is making work more effectively and efficiently. Now, there are some other medications, though, like sulfonylureas and insulin injections that they lower the blood sugar, yes, but they increase either the body's supply of insulin because you're injecting insulin or the sulfonylureas, which I'll call SUs, they increase the pancreas's production of insulin regardless of what the blood sugar is. So if you are having a low blood sugar and you take an SU, your blood sugar will drop further. These medications are very widely used, but there are some things that can be problematic. One is hypoglycemia. They're not really thinking about where the sugar is starting. They're just increasing the insulin regardless of what the sugar is doing. But also excessive insulin causes weight gain. 
And weight gain is what causes insulin resistance. And so these medications actually can worsen weight gain and worsen insulin resistance. So an ideal scenario is finding ways to get patients off of these medications if possible. And then there's a third set of medications called GLP-1 receptor agonists. They um, actually help the pancreas secrete insulin when it is needed, but it doesn't make this pancreas secrete excessive insulin when it's not needed. So when the sugar is higher, then the pancreas will secrete insulin and these work post-meal, but it doesn't cause hypoglycemia. So these are newer classes of medications that are smarter than the older SU and insulin medications. There are a few other medications as well that, that are there for diabetes. There's SGLT2 inhibitors that help patients urinate out extra sugar, but they don't necessarily work on insulin production or resistance directly. However, they do facilitate some weight loss so they can improve insulin resistance in that way. And then there are several other medications that, that you know, like Actos works on insulin resistance. Um, there are some other medications that work on the SU receptor, but um, yeah, so there are multiple different mechanisms of action. Some diabetes medications do work on insulin resistance and some don't. Okay. Now, what you do though, you do a lot with the lifestyle side. So you talk and I follow you on all your platforms. So I see a lot of, you know, nutrition and movement-based things. Physiologically, where does nutrition, how can nutrition step in to someone who is already farther down the rabbit hole, pre-diabetic, diabetic, diabetic um, even maybe already on medications? You know, what is the first step you're normally taking from a habit change side? Yeah. So nutrition is more powerful than any of those medications that I just described. So just for example, sake, or for my patients with diabetes who are listening out there, the largest A1C reduction that you can get from one of these medications alone, if you don't do anything else different, is something like one and a half percent to two percent A1C reduction. Now with lifestyle, you can get like a 6% A1C reduction. You can go from totally poorly controlled to perfectly normal hemoglobin A1C in many patients with diabetes or prediabetes. Not everyone because um, diabetes is progressive in nature. If you aggressively treat it in the beginning from a lifestyle perspective, then you are at more chance of remission. 20 years down the road, the poor little pancreas poops out and stops making sufficient insulin. And so it's very hard to put diabetes in remission after a patient has had it for 15, 20, 30 years. But early on, that's when we really can get the most bang for our buck from nutrition. And I see patients whose blood sugars go from being in the 400s to the 100s, literally overnight. We put them on continuous blood glucose monitors. They change their diet. Um, they start exercising. And it's, it's incredible to see how quickly their blood sugars can drop. Sure. Well, and especially for people, right, who have been under the same habits for, for years, Right. So mm-hmm. the body's very accustomed to these, to the same diet every day, the same high caloric needs every day. And then stress, right? Because stress plays a role too, just from a, uh, from a hormone standpoint of, mm-hmm. of cortisol being very high in your system, um, just to name the most famous one. So is there, a, is there a big relationship you see and do you do any 
conversational tactics with, with people who don't sleep enough and are very high stressed along with nutrition and movement? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a few things that are super, super important to health in general, but insulin resistance. And so, yes, I talk to my patients in detail about diet. I talk to them about exercise and meds, but I also talk to them about sleep and stress management, because if you are not sleeping and you are a complete stress ball, then none of the rest of the stuff is going to fall into place. It's very, very difficult to make good choices about your diet and your exercise and really anything when you're not sleeping or if you're just not feeling good about yourself or you're extremely stressed out. And so, you know, sometimes I have patients that are undergoing very, very challenging times in their life and some situations are out of their control. And those patients, you know, I try to ask them to be kind to themselves because, you know, I tell them, go through this, you're going through this, go through this and don't think that you have to go through this and lose 35 pounds at the exact same time. Like that's not, it doesn't work like this. And so, so yes. So in terms of sleep, I recommend that patients get seven to nine hours of restful sleep. And we discuss sleep hygiene, dark room, blackout curtains, if possible, eliminating distractions in eliminating, you know, animals or children in the bed, if they're keeping you up, if you're waking up a bunch of times to pee, maybe moving your last beverage to earlier in the evening. And it's incredible. Like I have, I have had patients who come to me incredibly anxious or having trouble in their marriage because they're really snippy or things like that. And I'm like, okay, let's do a detailed history. I do a, a, what I call the day in the life. I talk to my patients about, you know, when do they wake up? When do they eat? What do they do? Kind of getting an idea of where they are. And I'm like, well, you're getting four hours of sleep. So let's fix that and see if that fixes the other things. And on several occasions, I've seen just fixing the sleep fixes everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Really, really, really important. And I think, you know, we live in this world where we think, you know, I'll sleep when I die or sleep takes away from my productivity. And that's just simply not true. For every extra hour of sleep you get, you will not be an hour less productive. In fact, you might be, you'll probably be more productive. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something I can speak to because I'm one of those people that my entire career, part of it was what I did for a living. You know, I, I work when people are, are not working. So if people work in nine to five, I'm working 5 a.m. To, to eight and I'm working after, you know, so it was just part of it was a career choice. But I'm that person who, you know, I, I, if I needed more, I had to I had to take away from something and sleep would be what I dove into. And it, it took longer than it should have for those bells to go off because you spoke on it before. You're right. It's it comes down to now decision making besides the actual health part of sleep. When we don't get sleep. Every other decision starts going down the drain. Mm-hmm. Right, I make worse food choices. Um, so I love that you dig into that side along with what you do, because it's it's obviously so crucial. Now, from from the preventive side, you know, I feel like especially someone in your field probably more often than not tends to see people when at least they're somewhere in the spectrum. Right, they've they've gotten some news that maybe they could be in trouble. What signs do you try to tell people to look for 
Is it just regular checkups? But how can they start getting ahead of something? Again, let's, let's stay with diabetes for now first. Yeah, so diabetes is extra evil because it is so insidious. So if you are having symptoms from your diabetes, um, symptoms can be blurry vision, increased urination, increased thirst. Some people have weight loss with really um, severe diabetes, numbness, tingling in your hands or feet, kidney disease, heart disease, those things. Your diabetes has been out of control and it's been out of control for a while. So that's why it's really important to screen for diabetes. And so every person age 45 and older should be screened for diabetes. And if you have any other potential risk factors, like you're a high risk ethnicity, obesity, high blood pressure, overweight, family history, those things should really perk you up to get tested sooner for, for diabetes. And you can be tested in a few ways. One is a blood test called a hemoglobin A1C, or you can do a fasting sugar. Usually we do um, both of those for, for screening. And um, it's just really important to be proactive on your routine screenings because there's a lot of people that we see, unfortunately, the first time they're diagnosed in is when they're in the hospital and they had a heart attack. And they're like, well, I don't have diabetes. And you're like, well, your A1C is 16. So I'm sorry, my friend, not only did you have a heart attack, but you have diabetes and you probably had it for a long time. But yeah. And I think, you know, more importantly than just being screened is well, maybe not more importantly, but equally as importantly is just adhering to a healthful lifestyle before you have that diagnosis. You know, we all need to exercise. We all need to eat nutritiously. We all need to sleep. We all need to take care of our mental health. You don't want to be waiting until you get that news that your labs are off because when the labs go off, that's, that's doesn't happen in the short term. When we're starting to see lab blood work abnormalities, that, that means we've been putting stress on our organs for a long time. Yeah. And it's those accumulation of years that, that really, it's not age as itself, right? It's accumulation of habits I don't know if this is a question you'll, you'll, you'll want to be able to answer fully, but how much of a link do you see or believe in between pediatric nutrition and then adult health? You know, so the idea of even in the short term, you know, how, how children during developmental ages are eating and then the risk of maybe amplifying their genetic risk, you know, later on. So, you know, I don't, I don't have a perfect number for you, but I think it's extremely important we have to start with our kids here because so there's correlations and I, I almost hate saying this because it's seeing it's very like disheartening sometimes for, for people, but there's correlations to increased risk of diabetes in ch children whose mothers had diabetes when the fetus was in utero, like it links between obesity in children born to obese mothers. And so it's really important to start, like even preconception counseling needs to talk about this stuff because all of us want to set our kids up for success. None of us want to be the reason that our kids had any debilitating anything ever. <laughs> so, um, so we, we really need to be counseling people early, but before they start even thinking about having kids when they are children themselves. I know I, I talk to my kids about nutrition all the time and they're foreign too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. 
But yeah, a, a child who has poor eating habits or is obese is far more likely, I mean, is more likely than not to become an overweight or obese adult. And overweight and obese adults are more likely to, to have things like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. But the scarier thing is we're seeing those things in children already. I think the youngest child that has been diagnosed with type two diabetes was three years old. One of the pediatricians wow. in my old practice told me that's the youngest child that she'd seen. And so, you know, when a child is diagnosed <clears throat> at three, like they never had a chance. Right. And so, or even if they're diagnosed at 10 or 12 or 15, you know, they never had a chance. And so it's really, really important in my opinion, for us to be educating our children young. And it doesn't have to be in a punitive way. In fact, it shouldn't be in a punitive way. And it's a double-edged sword, right? And, and you're not saying this, but I am. There's that genetic component, right? You said there is the actual the research that says that you are, your risk is higher when you're born to, to parents have it. But now that you're also probably seeing those habits as you grow up as well. So mm -hmm. even if the risk was a certain percentage, they're probably continuing. And even if, you know, the whole do as I say, not as I do thing just doesn't work. Cause, and now, and as a parent of three kids, listen to what you do. They mimic, they, they repeat. They're, they're really not verbal learners. Mm -hmm. So it's so crucial for us to get, you know, parents on board. And I, and I love, I have a fantastic pediatrician. I love it. Cause this is a conversation she has with us every time we go in, mm -hmm. but there's, there's a reinforcement to how, what our habits are, mm -hmm. not just, not just what the kids habits are. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly right. You know, I have two little ones and they do what we do and it's not easy all the time. I mean, of course my son would much rather eat processed junk food all the time, but I'm the parent here and I have to make um, the decisions that I know are going to help him grow and thrive. And so, you know, and, and my daughter, on the other hand, she's four and she is like, She's almost five, actually. I can't believe it. But she is, you know, what do you want for dinner? Pasta, peas, tomatoes. You know, she eats whole grain pasta, no problems, you know. So mm -hmm. I think sticking it out when they're young and recalcitrant and don't want you to do anything or don't want to do anything you want them to do, it does teach them. And of course, I'm, I am very fortunate with her, but you know, I think every child has potential, I'm not saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that I've, I never give in to them because I certainly do, but, you know, just, just kind of taking a deep breath and saying, okay, it's better for them to throw this tantrum now for, and, and not eat the junk food yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, they'll be better for it in the long run. Yeah, ab Absolutely. I'm laughing too, because it's the way we try to sneak things in, right? Like I, like here's brown rice noodles. And every once in a while though, even, even a three-year-old will be like, these don't taste the same, you know, but, but it, it, it works. On occasion, thrown in some cauliflower into their smoothies. Yes. <laughs> you know, if, you know, if nothing else works, make it into a smoothie and, <laughs> and, and you'll get, sometimes my son, he just will not eat his veggies. And I'm like, okay, who wants a smoothie for dessert? <laughs> Doesn't matter that it has carrots and celery and all kinds of stuff in it. But yesterday, I mean, my two-year-old ate a salad for dinner and I just laughed because I was like, what kind of kid eats a salad? But okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
the, the kid of a parent who's constantly giving them good options. That's perfect. And they're right. The smoothie is by far work the best, both for my 10 year old and, and my little guys. Mm-hmm. Um, the 10 year old, I won't let her watch me put anything in. I said, if you want it, you got to trust me. You got to sit back, you know? So she'll sit there and so she'll admit that it's good. But you can tell she, she knows. I'm <laughs> you mentioned someone, you know, maybe finding out about being diabetic when they were in the hospital for a heart attack. A question I had for you was, you know, the idea of comorbidities and where, where diabetes and, and maybe cancer and heart, uh, heart diseases, you know, how often are things ever really just one independent disease and how much are the same internal factors maybe manifesting in multiple at once? And is that something you could speak on? So I think the most beautiful thing about nutrition is a, is a healthful diet that's centered around whole grains, uh, legumes, fruits, and veggies. It's good for everything. So it's not going to increase your risk of diseases in any way for eating a healthful diet. And so, um, I think people should feel, you know, it's very confusing out there. There's so many different dietary, I don't want to say guidelines, but dietary resources, I guess. So many different diet books, diet websites, this, that weight loss, rapid weight loss, lots of fad diets out there. But the science really boils down to a few things. It, it boils down to eating diets that are high nutritional quality and eating those four food groups, mostly pretty much every medical guideline agrees on, you know, you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to be a vegetarian. You don't have to eat plants only, but a plant centered or plant heavy or plant forward, however you want to put it, (laughs) diet is beneficial. And I don't really think that there are too many people who, who would argue with that. And it also makes sense, common sense wise, right? Like you want to be eating these natural things over processed things, but, but yeah, so there are studies with heart disease, diabetes, even cancers, breast cancer, uh, a lot, and then colon cancer and association with red meat that that supports eating this way for pretty much all prevention of all diseases. Now, when you get into specific diseases that are in end stages like cr- chronic kidney disease or end stage renal disease, there may be some other restrictions that they um, have to put on you. But in general, if from a preventative standpoint, or even somebody who has mild or newly diagnosed illness, of course, you should talk to your doctor about it, but eating a, a plant-rich diet is helpful. Sure. Because then to reverse that, if you're at risk for one of these morbidities, you're, you're probably higher at risk for all of them, right? I mean, they're not mm-hmm. usually, unless there's a, a, a specific, there are reasons, but from a, just a general health perspective, if you're at risk for diabetes, you're probably also at risk for heart disease, right? I mean, and I and I bring this up because, you know, even back in grad school, risk stratification was something we did a lot of, you know? So when you look at people who come in, you say, okay, well, looking at lifestyle, you're at risk for this, this, and this. It, it was never, either people were really healthy and at risk for almost nothing, or they're probably at risk across the board. And is that something, and that was just, and I, I don't do what you do for a living, but is that something, would you agree with that? Is that something you see in your practice? Yeah, yeah, so- 
the majority of diseases that we treat, I think the statistic last I looked was 86% of diseases are lifestyle related. And all of the lifestyle things are the same for all of the lifestyle related diseases, you know, poor diet, lack of exercise, smoking, um, stress, all of those things contribute to increased risk of lifestyle related diseases. And that's the majority of diseases that we treat nowadays. Right. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And it's, I think sometimes that can be a, a powerful thing for someone to hear about, you know, how I think we hear of these different things and they're thought of such separate components to life. And you realize like, it, it can be just a one focus. The focus doesn't have to be on those. It can just be on your, your day to day. Yeah. I think that day to day is more important than anything, you know, consistency and compounding is Im- important for health, just like it is for investing in anything else. Right. So, yeah. so what you do the month of January isn't after you made a resolution, isn't necessarily as important as what you do February through December, right? So you really want to focus on doing things that you enjoy, that you can commit to, focus on the work, don't focus on the scale. And that's really what's going to get you to a healthy life. Okay. How much of a link have you seen between insulin and cancer as a whole specifically? And I ask this question now because I was recently reading an article Mm-hmm. Um, that's not true. I was listening to <laughs> to someone speak off an article, but it was a professional who was talking about, you know, just the, the prevalence of insulin in the system and the way that cancer cells can mature. But I'd like to dig more into that side of it if you'd like, if you would, and links that maybe you've seen. Yeah. So insulin is an anabolic hormone. Okay. So what that means is it makes things grow. So when we talked about how more insulin leads to more weight gain, that's because insulin helps the body deposit fat. You know, it helps the body grow. Now, could that be extrapolated to cancer cells? Maybe, but I don't think that there is enough research out there, at least not that I have seen or read myself to say that the use of insulin or insulin resistance is directly tied to cancers. Insulin resistance is a fairly new concept, really started being talked about in around 2007, 2010. And so there's a lot of doctors who don't even really know much about insulin resistance. So as we learn more and more about insulin resistance, more linkages may become more clear. But at this point, I think it would be premature for me to say, oh yes, absolutely. Insulin resistance is is linked to cancer. Sure. Okay. Well, that leads me into, you know, where let's talk about some maybe common not diets, but common fads in nutrition right now. And I'd love to hear your take on them. The first one, first one being a, a popular topic of mine, but I'd like to talk about fasting uh-huh. and where and what what role you see, what role should fasting have, if any, and, and do you use it in any way as a tactic for yourself? It's just become such a common, it's become a buzzword. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that makes it very important to talk about. So intermittent fasting has very limited human studies. So um, there's been a lot of studies in animals and, and things like that. And so the data isn't, isn't there to make strong conclusions about, about what it does. Some studies have found that fasting, like intermittent fasting, um, there's multiple types of fasting. Intermittent mm-hmm. fasting, there's alternate day fasting. People can prolong their fasting or shorten it kind of based on their, their lifestyle and preferences. But intermittent fasting is 
when you fast for, for example, 16 hours and have an eight hour eating window or 18 hours and have a six hour eating window window. So the thing that I find most interesting about what some studies have shown is inadvertent or unintentional calorie restriction. So there've been studies that have shown people who are intermittently fasting have an unintentional 300 to 500 calorie per day restriction by shortening their eating window. And to me, that's meaningful because when you're trying to lose weight or if you're accustomed to overeating and trying to change that, um, restricting, restricting your calories by that much a day can be very, very helpful and beneficial, especially if it's unintentional. Anyone who has ever tried strict calorie counting on themselves knows that it's very hard. It's really, really hard to write down everything that you're eating, measure, weigh, foods. It's, it's impractical for most people for long term. So um, I think that's promising. Some of the studies have also shown um, potential improvements in insulin sensitivity with fasting in patients who have prediabetes or diabetes. So in regular healthy subjects that didn't have those things, didn't really show improvement in insulin sensitivity. However, in patients who have a higher propensity to insulin resistance, there may be some promise that it can be helpful there. So data is lacking, but some of the data is is promising. Personally, I do intermittently fast. I do a 16 and eight fast and mostly, mostly for the unintentional calorie restriction benefit of it. And the other part is I'm a busy mom and it's one less thing that I have to do in the morning. And I don't, and there doesn't seem to be any health detriment from it. Um, in my personal experience. And I've seen patients actually do really, really well off of it. Um, It's interesting to me how sometimes hunger is in the mind or perhaps oftentimes, or some of us most of the time, it's a mental thing because a lot of people say, I don't get hungry until I break my fast, you know? And so kind of out of sight, out of mind with food can be beneficial for people who are trying to reduce their calorie intake. Uh, Yeah, and and on a different podcast, I actually have a guest coming on and we're going to talk a little bit about you know, serotonin receptors and just that, you know, food and food triggering and, and bored eating and where all that comes in. Mm-hmm. I'm also a practicer. And again, I can't speak to this to, uh, to the point of absolutes, but I can tell you that I have definitely noticed there, there's a specific window to where I feel decision-making getting better, energy going up versus what's too much. So I, I do a nine hour eating window and that works really, really well for me. Mm-hmm. I've definitely played with the longer fast just mm-hmm. from a research, a personal research standpoint. And there's definitely a pretty quick return to where else and I say, okay, that was, that was too much. My body didn't get enough before it really needed it. And I started to see the adverse effects. So I think it's really, it's really interesting. I, I look forward to new research every time I see it because I, I really want to see where it goes. Cause it's like, it's, it's a buzz, but I want to see where it can come in. I've also seen some interesting things on, you know, the maybes of what it could do with my father died of a brain tumor in 2013. So I just, I like, I enjoy reading about cancer research. And I think more and more, I see that popping up in blips here and there about, you know, what fasting can do with cancer cell growth. And it's just a fascinating topic. Yeah. Um, I also think there's a bit of an irony to, I think fasting is really for people that have really good control of their nutrition, at least from my side. So from, uh, from the fitness side, what I see here and people that tend to want to get into fasting 
it's usually because they think it'll be a fix to get them back in control. And I would say it's usually the not because people that go really big deficits, if they're used to negative eating, a lot of times struggle with returning to eating or overindulging when they do get back to eating. So I think it can be really good, but it takes the right person too to be ready to, to control such specifics like that. Yeah. And I think, you know, for some people it works great. And like anything, there's no like panacea and there's nothing that works for every single person. So mm-hmm. I've had patients who just hate it. They're like, I like breakfast and, and I like dinner. And so <laughs> I, and that's fine. You know, I think you just have to find a formula that works for each individual individual, because that's what we are. Yeah. I love that. So similar, but kind of different meal timing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, going the opposite end for a long time, the big thing was eat small, eat often. Mm-hmm. Where, where does meal timing come in to, uh, to either the research or to how you speak in terms of habits and clients? So, you know, I think there's two spectrums of people, right? There are my patients who are typically patients who are older, who are struggling with metabolic diseases like diabetes. And then there's a population of patients who's really interested in eating timing due to their fitness goals. Mm -hmm. And so those are two cohorts of patients um, that I think the the goals and the planning are different for. So in my cohort, my diabetes patients who have, you know, as you know, have had a lifelong relationship with food that has gotten them there. You know, in that kind of subset, what I have found and what some research shows is that small meals, like, you know, that whole eat six small meals a day, while it perhaps does boost your metabolism by maybe 100 to 200 calories a day, the increased number of calories that you consume eating that frequently more than offsets it. So, you know, when you're telling somebody who is not inclined to cooking and eating carrots for their snacks, you know, um, to eat six small meals a day, they reach for prepackaged processed junk food, even if it's marketed to be health food, oftentimes it's really junk food. And so if they're eating, cause mo- nobody really has time to cook six times a day. I mean, let's be realistic here. Most of us have time to cook once, maybe twice a day. And so if we're having patients eating six small meals a day and there are these grab and go processed snacky foods, they're going to ingest a lot of junk. You know, those bars that you can get are usually like 200 calories at least. And so, so in that subset of patients, I prefer that I, I tell them eat when you're hungry, you know, don't eat when you're not hungry, just for the sake of increasing your metabolism, because it's, you're going to overcompensate with the excess calories. So, and is there any relationship then with, you know, maybe a a regulation of, of insulin or how much insulin gets released? Does a smaller meal help you to not get such a big bolus dose? Is that anything you work with? Yeah. So it depends on the constitution of the meals and the patient, because not all type two diabetics are on insulin. And so if they are not on insulin, then their medications aren't working necessarily depends on the medication, but they're not necessarily working just to cover that meal at that one time. Now, if a patient is insulin dependent, like they're a type one or they're a type two, that's really late stage, they should be taking insulin every time they ingest carbs. So eating six times a day, 
depending on, you know, the quality and quantity of foods, they may actually be injecting more insulin than they would be otherwise. But it has to be really patient-centered because, you know, kind of depends on what exactly they're eating. And how about the healthy individual? The, the person who diabetes is nowhere near their radar yet, is that something they should think about though? Is, is the size of a meal, if someone is, I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm an Italian overindulger. That's how I grew up. So I grew up and that was a big habit. I really had, it took me a long time to change was mm-hmm. we always ate these huge, I mean, huge meals, mm-hmm. unnecessarily big meals. <laughs> so for people that have, that I get used to that and doing that many times a week, where does portion size come into that? I guess is the question. So portion size is hugely important. You see people or I see people all the time who say, oh, my friend, so-and-so, they can eat whatever they want and they can, and they never gain weight. And (laughs) I always say, focus on yourself because you never know what that other person is doing when you're not with them. And you never, you know, yeah, sure. I could eat one Snickers bar every single day of my whole life and probably lose weight. But does that, you know, and so, but if I ate, 10 or a hundred Snickers bars a day, then I wouldn't. Right. And so portion size is as important as anything else in maintaining, maintaining weight and weight loss. The, the thing about, you know, at one time, you know, people thought it was all about the number of calories. And now I think we've learned that the quality of the food matters just as much, if not more. So, in terms of diabetes risk reduction, it matters what the portion is coming from too. But you know, excessive calories is gonna is gonna be what truly makes you gain weight. The good thing about eating, you know, whole grains, fruits and veggies, non-starchy veggies, especially legumes, are these are fiber-rich, low-calorie dense foods. So you can eat large quantities of them. They will make you feel full without ingesting a whole bunch of calories. Yeah. And when you get what you need, it helps a little bit from the hunger standpoint too. When you have adequate proteins, vitamins, and minerals in your system, the body doesn't tend to have that, that say, Hey, I, you got to give me something. I'm, I'm lacking something. Mm-hmm. And this is really where plant-based plant focus, like you said, whatever term you want to use, that's really where this came out of, right. Was when people worry so much about decreasing, 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 don't eat this, don't eat that, that they forget that we, there's just tools our body needs. And if we don't get those tools, if we don't get our vital minerals and, and vitamins, we just don't work properly, mm-hmm. which then feeds into that system. Then we don't sleep properly, which means our decision-making is bad. Then we start you know, eating more and then gaining more weight. So it's, I agree. I think food choices is really important from that side of it, um, making sure we have what we need to, to lose weight, to be energetic, to function properly, to think straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is great. So you know, one of the last things I want to get into, and I want to be, cognitive of your, of your time here was, um, you've talked a lot about the recent situation. So the COVID situation, when it comes to, um, what you do for a living and just lifestyle in general. So can you talk a bit about what you've seen in terms of the effects of daily lifestyle and maybe what's happening in the, in the universe right now with, with COVID and, and disease? Yeah. So first of all, I think this is a great time (laughs) to talk about, you know, there's a lot of people sort of capitalizing on people's fear at this time. And that is not what we need to be doing right now. There is no quick fix miracle diet that is going to protect you from getting COVID. 
The best things that you can do are the public health things that we have been been talking about this whole time, masking, social distancing, Mm -hmm. protecting yourself. You're not going to be able to, yes, being healthy is going to optimize your risk, but there's, that's not a hundred percent. You still have to do those other things. You still have to mask they'll have to social distance. And if somebody tells you not that that is not true, they might be trying to sell you something. But in terms of diabetes specifically, we have seen studies now pretty large studies showing that people who have better controlled diabetes have decreased risk of complications from COVID. And in the diabetes space, you know, we are we know very well that High blood sugars impair wound healing. We see it in our post-surgical patients all the time, patients with frequent infections with high blood sugars. So we know and have known for a long time that poorly controlled diabetes impairs immunity and healing. And so if you are a patient who has diabetes in this time, yes, mask, yes, socially distance, but also do everything that you can to optimize your blood sugar. And you can do that by optimizing your nutrition, exercising, exercise. There's a study that showed 45 minutes of exercise immediately improved insulin resistance in lean, but insulin resistant subjects. And this was out of Yale. So a good study. So exercise really does help with, with insulin resistance. So if you unfortunately already have a diagnosis of diabetes or pre-diabetes, working on your health is there's no better time than now to really start thinking about your lifestyle and how you can make improvements. Because unfortunately, uh, my husband's an ICU physician and the people that he's seeing getting really sick are those who are obese or really poorly controlled diabetes, which just makes my job of tantamount importance. Not that I thought it wasn't before, but yeah, do everything that you can. So mask distance and eat healthy, move your body in whatever way you can. And that'll set you up. I'm not going to say it's going to be a hundred percent foolproof way to avoid COVID, but we're in the last stretch. The vaccine is here. I got my vaccine already. And so we've just got to push through for a few more months. I know everybody's tired of it and they're over it. They want to get out, but just a couple more months in Texas, people with comorbidities like diabetes are supposed to be getting the shot in January. So, so if we can push through, we can really save some lives. Yeah, I, well said, doctor, this has been, this has been great. What you do is so greatly important. I love your content. I love the messages you put out. Where can people find you? Thank you. Well, um, I'm on Instagram. It's just at Dr. Arthi Thangadu, D-R-A-R-T-I-T-H-A-N-G-U-D-U. Um, my website is www.sacomplete.com and my um, practice, Complete Medicine, also has a Facebook page. Got it. Well, that will all be in the show notes um, as well as on my social media posts about this episode. Doctor, again, thank you so much for taking the time. For um, there, This has been really fantastic information, so I appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. So everyone, please go look her up. Go go see what I'm seeing. It's a good person to follow. I have followed probably 10 other people after following your page. So I'm getting really good information from everywhere. So I really appreciate it. You can just hold on for a second and everyone else, we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Lifestyle as Medicine podcast. 
Find more episodes like this at www.lifestyleasmedicinepodcast.com and visit www.marhealthandperformance.com and at Mar Health and Performance on both Facebook and Instagram for more great content and information about programs. Have a great day and see you next time.